When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Dear sir, when you did me the honor of appointing me to the office I now hold, I engaged in it without a view of continuing any length of time, and I pretty early concluded on the close of the first four years of our republic as a proper period for withdrawing. At the close, therefore, of the ensuing month of September, I shall beg leave to retire to scenes of greater tranquility from those which I am every day more and more convinced that neither my talents, tone of mind, nor time of life fit me, that you may find one more able to lighten the burdens of your labors, I most sincerely wish, for no man living more sincerely wishes that your administration could be rendered as pleasant to yourself as it is useful and necessary to our country. With that letter on July 31, 1793, Jefferson was saying firmly and finally that he wanted out of the Washington administration. The president would call on Jefferson at his home a few days later, on August 6th, and the two would discuss the matter, with Washington expressing his own regret at having accepted a second term as president, one in which he was now facing the possibility of losing two of his most trusted advisors, as Hamilton was talking about resigning as well. Jefferson at one point began to espouse what we will now label as Jeffersonian Republican ideology at seeing enemies and, quote, merchants connected closely with England to which Washington said that he believed that, quote, the views of the Republican Party were perfectly pure, but when men put a machine into motion, it is impossible for them to stop it exactly where they would choose or to say where it will stop. Washington admitted to the existence of, quote, a party disposed to change the Constitution into a monarchical form, but there was not a man in the United States who would set his face more decidedly against it than himself. Though Jefferson may fret about them, the monarchists were the least of Washington's worries in the troublesome year of 1793. Hello and welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I am, as always, your host, Jerry Landry. I'd like to start this episode out with special thanks to the podcast audio editor, Andrew Foncook. As we navigate the treacherous waters of Washington's second term, we can at least count on smooth audio so long as he is at the helm of that portion of our production. Should you need his able audio editing skills, reach out to him via email at andrew at foncook, that's P-F-A-N-N-K-U-C-H-E dot com. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. When last we left off, the conflict between Britain and France was threatening to spill over into the United States. Around the time that the administration was settling one conflict, word came in of more problems in Charleston, South Carolina. And these problems could be traced back to the new French minister to the U.S., Edmund Charles Genet at that point still on his way to Philadelphia. 
If you'll recall from last time, Citizen Genet had disembarked at Charleston and began a grand procession up the East Coast, being fed it by towns and cities and hobnobbing with notables along the way. Before he left Charleston, though, he had commissioned four privateers to serve the French cause by attacking the British. Before the administration could even process that information, news came that two of the privateers had captured a British vessel, the Little Sarah, off the coast of Virginia and had brought it on to Philadelphia as a prize, in much the same way the other British ship, the Grange, had been brought in earlier. On top of that, the French consul in Charleston had established an admiralty court in that city. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the term, an admiralty court is a court that is, quote, separate from the common law courts, that operate according to distinct procedures and substantive law, that, quote, determine the legitimacy of the capture of vessels in times of war, condemned and sold the ship and its cargo, and distributed the proceeds to the privateer as compensation. In the United States, maritime cases are in the jurisdiction of federal district courts, something that would be confirmed in legal precedent in a case that the Supreme Court would hear the following year. But this was not the case with Britain or France. What made this so troubling is that this was a French admiralty court operating out of a U.S. port city. Again, as with the case of the capture of the Grange that we discussed last time, this was a fragrant violation not just of the Neutrality Proclamation, but of the independent sovereignty of the United States itself. In what was quickly becoming a pattern, Washington asked for written opinions from all of his cabinet members on the case of the Little Sarah, but unlike with the list of questions he had sent them earlier in the month, to this question all responded in a roughly 24-hour period. Naturally, Hamilton and Knox both supported the British fully on this and argued that the Little Sarah should be returned immediately. Jefferson at least admitted that the outfitting of privateers in U.S. ports was wrong and that the government should act to prevent it, but he did not believe that the United States government had authority to return the Little Sarah to the British as it was technically in French custody. To do so would be, quote, an act of force, which could then be, quote, considered an act of war, and only Congress could decide whether that step should be taken. Randolph likewise agreed with Jefferson that the British demand for, quote, restitution ought not to be attempted. With the cabinet deadlocked and no compromise appearing from the opinions, Washington paused. And as he did so, the precipitator of his recent headaches rode into town. Charles Edmund Genet had arrived in Philadelphia. To be fair to Citizen Genet, he had not heard of the Neutrality Proclamation until he reached Richmond, Virginia, many days after he had commissioned the privateers in Charleston. And he had attempted to speed up his progress when he learned of the proclamation, and indeed arrived on the same coach that carried a letter from him announcing when he intended to arrive. When Genet arrived, he was welcomed by Pennsylvania Governor Thomas Mifflin to rounds of artillery fire, and gave a speech to a large crowd gathered at the city tavern, which was received, quote, with hearty shouts and salutations. There would be nothing hearty about his reception by Washington. Jefferson presented Citizen Genet to Washington at the President's house at 2 in the afternoon on May 18, and, as had been previously agreed upon, the President greeted him, quote, with the touch of coolness. The French minister, as was customary, made a speech to the president, stating as follows, quote, We know that under present circumstances, we have a right to call upon you for the guarantee of our islands in the Caribbean, but we do not desire it. We wish you to do nothing but what is for your own good, and we will do all in our power to promote it. Cherish your own peace and prosperity. You have expressed a willingness to enter into a more liberal treaty of commerce with us. 
I bring full powers to form such a treaty and a preliminary decree of the National Convention to lay open our country and its colonies to you for every purpose of utility without your participating in the burdens of maintaining and defending them. We see in you the only person on earth who can love us sincerely and merit to be so loved. As noted by Washington biographer James Thomas Flexner, quote, We can only guess at what were Washington's reactions. Washington said no word and made no gesture which Jefferson found it necessary to criticize. But Genet's speech could well have sounded both unctuous and condescending towards the United States. Not affection, but necessity made France willing to open her colonies freely to American shipping. It was in fact better for France that the United States not declare war against Great Britain. The British Navy all but controlled the Atlantic, and if the French were to retain their remaining colonies in the Caribbean, then they would need American shipping to keep them supplied. Likewise, by using the blank letters of marque that Genet carried to charter privateers to attack the British, Genet could enlist American citizens to fight the British Navy without the American government having to be involved. Little did he know, though, that Washington already had his folks at work in seeking out solutions to the thorny issues presented by the new arrival from France. Washington had instructed Attorney General Randolph that day to speak to merchants in Philadelphia about the situation of the Little Sarah. Washington, having decided after his meeting with Genet that he needed a walk, made his way in the evening to Randolph's house, but did not find him as Randolph was still making his inquiries about town. When Randolph returned, he wrote out his thoughts to Washington, while concluding, quote, that restitution is the wish of the majority of the merchants. Randolph did caution him that, as, quote, the existence of our poor mercantile capitals is so interwoven with those of Great Britain, the pleasure of the British merchants must always be a rule of action to our merchants. Instead, he pointed to the example of France during the Revolutionary War before they established their alliance with the U.S., where French privateers had been commissioned and taken British vessels, but asserting that, according to intelligence he received from an American merchant, the British had not sought restitution from the French government at that time. Again, Randolph provided Washington with the inspiration he needed for a compromise. After talking over the matter with Randolph a bit further, Washington decided that the Little Sarah would remain a French prize, but he did issue an order to the privateers that had seized her, forcing them out of U.S. ports. For the moment, all could breathe a sigh of relief, which would prove to last only for a moment. The Genet fever had taken hold in Philip Freneau of the National Gazette, and his previous anti-administration rhetoric began to take aim squarely at the head of the administration, George Washington. The focus of the paper's vitriol up to this point had been the Secretary of the Treasury, as he was the main rival of Freneau's patron, Secretary of State Jefferson. In May 1793, however, Freneau's passion for the French Revolution, in ways even more ardent than Jefferson's, made him go further than Jefferson ever would and begin to attack Washington directly following the Neutrality Proclamation, which he saw as a betrayal of our alliance with the French. So much so that Freneau wrote in his paper shortly after that the only reason Washington had signed it was that the Anglophiles in the government had threatened, quote, they would cut off his head if he didn't. This incensed the president, who did not take lightly the mention of his own decapitation so soon after the news of Louis XVI, and Washington demanded that Jefferson fire Freneau from his position at the State Department. 
Jefferson was ultimately able to keep Freneau on for a while longer, but the incident made clear the terrors that were beginning to form in the minds of Federalists as to what the French Revolution may mean for leaders in the United States. John Adams later claimed during this time to have had, quote, chest of arms brought from the war office through bylanes and back doors so that he could defend his house. Others, though, rather than arming up, were working behind the scenes to start swinging the pendulum the other way. Hamilton was maintaining his private conversations with British minister to the U.S., George Hammond, and provided him with reassurances that he would prevent the U.S. from entering the war on the French side, and that, indeed, he was already delaying the repayment of our debt to France and would ensure that no large advances of funds were made to the revolutionary French government. Meanwhile, he was making preparations to take the fight to the public arena, but before he could, the cabinet would have to yet again face the fear of losing Washington. As May gave way to June, Washington began to run a fever which lingered for a few days, and his health issues were exacerbated by the continued public attacks coming from the National Gazette. Jefferson wrote of this to James Madison, who had returned home after the congressional session had ended, and explained that, quote, The president is not well. Little lingering fevers have been hanging about him for a week or ten days, and have affected his looks most remarkably. He is also extremely affected by the attacks made and kept up on him in the public papers. I think he feels those things more than any person I ever yet met with. I am sincerely sorry to see them. I remember an observation of yours, made when I first went to New York, that the satellites and sycophants which surrounded him had wound up the ceremonials of the government to a pitch of stateliness which nothing but his personal character could have supported, and which no character after him could ever maintain. It appears now that even his will be insufficient to justify them in the appeal of the times to common sense as the arbiter of everything. Naked, he would have been sanctimoniously reverenced, but enveloped in the rags of royalty. They can hardly be torn off without laceration. It is the more unfortunate that this attack is planted on popular ground, on the love of the people to France and its cause, which is universal. Though Jefferson was not willing to go as far as Freneau and attack the president directly, it seems as if he also felt the attacks against Washington were justified. However, as stated last episode, Jefferson could not justify the arming of privateers in American ports, and thus, in accordance with the wishes of the administration, he met with Citizen Genet on June 5th and wrote a, quote, restrained and kind but firm note that he had to stop equipping privateers from the U.S. and enlisting Americans to fight the British. As noted by Jefferson biographer Dumas Malone, quote, Jefferson tended to be unsuspicious of persons who shared, or seemed to share, his general principles, being disposed to take them at their own valuation as long as he could. And since Genet's arrival, the two had enjoyed a cordial relationship, so much so that Jefferson, writing in his private diary, would mention how Genet, quote, communicated things to me not as Secretary of State, but as Mr. Jeff. While some level of personal contact is to be expected, the level of collusion at this point in history between the Secretary of State and the French Minister to the U.S. on the one hand, and the Secretary of the Treasury and the British Minister to the U.S. on the other, certainly gave Washington biographer James Thomas Flexner pause when he wrote in the late 1960s, as I can imagine it does to our contemporary listeners in 2017. The ties that bound Jefferson and Genet, though, would soon be strained, as, despite what Mr. Jeff had said, Genet proceeded to begin an outfitting of the captured little Sarah to become a French privateer, dubbed La Petite Democrate. 
Though Washington's health ultimately recovered, he was faced with another health-related dilemma in June 1793. Washington had been growing increasingly irritated with reports of operations at Mount Vernon, as directed by his manager, Anthony Whiting. Whiting, described as, quote, a simple farmer trying to fill in, was ill with tuberculosis and increasingly proving unable to manage the plantation in Washington's absence. Finally, news came that Whiting was completely incapacitated with his death only a matter of time, and Washington had to make plans to rush back to Mount Vernon to oversee the June harvest personally. One does have to wonder whether part of Washington was relieved to be leaving Philadelphia, albeit briefly. In any event, Washington departed from Philadelphia on June 23rd, bound for Mount Vernon, with most of his cabinet remaining in Philadelphia to send reports to him and to alert him should his immediate presence be needed. Only Attorney General Randolph was absent during this period, having left Philadelphia on June 6th on a special mission for Washington to gauge the strength of the pro-French sentiment in the South. While Washington was out of town, the situation would only become further heated, in part by the actions of his own cabinet secretaries. Like Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton was becoming increasingly ill at ease with the constraints of his role in the administration. While enjoying considerable influence within the cabinet, Hamilton was increasingly annoyed by the attacks being launched at him by Freneau and other Jefferson supporters, and one has to wonder whether he felt threatened by how Washington seemed to be increasingly relying on Edmund Randolph. He claimed that his decision was made with consideration, quote, both to the public interest and to my own delicacy, and agreed to stay on for another year to conclude work on the administration's financial plan, as well as to fully refute the charges that had been lodged against him by Representative William Branch Giles earlier in the year, which we discussed in episode 1.14. However, one can only imagine how Washington took the news that, after being convinced to stand for another term, one of his chief advisors was planning to bail out. Meanwhile, Citizen Genet had no intentions of waiting for Washington's return before acting, and notified Jefferson on June 22nd that he felt that the treaties between the U.S. and France allowed France the right to outfit ships in American ports. Furthermore, quote, This is not the way the American people want us, i.e., France, to be treated. I'm inclined to believe that steps of this nature have not been conceived in the heart of General Washington, that celebrated hero of liberty. I can attribute them only to foreign impressions, of which time and truth will triumph. Now, we know from studying Genet's letters back to France that, a few days prior, he had written that, quote, Old Washington impedes my course in a thousand ways and forces me to urge secretly the calling of Congress, the majority of which will be decidedly in our favor. But even this veiled threat of appealing to public opinion was enough to take Jefferson aback and to infuriate Hamilton. Hamilton and Genet would meet towards the end of the month, and Hamilton would state in no uncertain terms that Washington was within his rights to have issued the Neutrality Proclamation and that it should be respected as carrying the force of law. Genet would counter, quote, that this misuse of executive power usurped congressional prerogatives. As described by historian Ron Chernow, quote, the scene had decided elements of farce. Citizen Genet was lecturing the chief author of the Federalist Papers on the interpretation of the U.S. Constitution. If Genet would persist, then so would Hamilton. The first of a series of essays authored by Hamilton and published under the pseudonym of Pacificus went out in the Gazette of the United States on June 29th. 
Hamilton would directly take on Genet's argument that congressional power had been usurped by the executive branch and counter that, quote, if the legislature have a right to make war, on the one hand, it is, on the other, the duty of the executive to preserve peace till war is declared. Subsequent essays would outline his thoughts that the Treaty of Alliance with France did not bind the U.S. to join the current conflict, as the treaty was intended to ally the two nations in a defensive conflict, whereas France was the aggressor in the current war, that joining the war would be devastating for the United States, and that the U.S. owed King Louis XVI for its freedom. Hamilton was not willing to cede the public relations battle to the Jeffersonian faction and started sending out the call to pro-administration leaders to organize rallies to support the Neutrality Proclamation. Now, before we proceed with the story of Genet, I should note that this rallying call of Hamilton, along with one other event that I'm about to mention, marked the beginning of the point where I feel comfortable with us referring to the Federalist and the Democratic-Republican parties. Naturally, the Federalists will be composed primarily of those who have previously been identified as the pro-administration faction or as allied with Alexander Hamilton, while the Democratic Republicans will be composed primarily of those previously identified as anti-administration or as allied with Thomas Jefferson. Why is this point where I feel comfortable defining parties by name? Because this is the point where, on both sides we start to see a true organization for the purpose of carrying forward a set agenda and are currying the favor of the public. While Hamilton was launching his Pacificus essays and getting pro-neutrality rallies going, on July 3rd, the Democratic Society of Pennsylvania drew up a formal constitution. Two things distinguish this group from other Democratic-Republican societies that have been popping up since the spring. First, its membership included numerous prominent leaders of Pennsylvania society, including the Secretary of the State of Pennsylvania, Alexander J. Dallas, and Director of the U.S. Mint, David Rittenhouse. Second, this group wasn't just satisfied with being an isolated group. Rather, they sent out a circular urging that other groups be organized across the country along the same lines as them. They would serve to be the mother society for a nationwide party organization. Party politics had arrived in the United States, and the nation would never be the same. Just one final note about this. After much consideration, I'm choosing to use the term Democratic-Republican Party, as there was never an agreed-upon term for the party, though Republican was often used in reference to the party. But I would like to emphasize that there is a difference between this party and the Republican Party that would be founded in the 1850s. If anyone has any objections to this, please feel free to reach out to me. Otherwise, we'll proceed along these lines. Likewise proceeding was Citizen Genet and his plans, and he was growing ever bolder by the day. On July 5th, he met with Jefferson and read to him proclamations that he had prepared to encourage inhabitants of Louisiana and Canada to revolt against Spanish and British authorities, respectively. To aid in this scheme, Genet had already been in touch with two generals in Kentucky who had promised to proceed down to New Orleans and liberate it from Spanish control and, with the aid of Native American forces, establish an independent state of Louisiana if the French were willing to pay for the expedition. Genet had gone from just equipping privateers to strike at the British Navy to now planning a realignment of power on the North American continent. Jefferson, while writing of the incident, asserted that he only cautioned Genet against actively enlisting Americans in the scheme as they, quote, would assuredly be hung if they commenced hostilities against a nation at peace with the United States. For the rest of his plan, though, 
Jefferson wrote, quote, I did not care what insurrections should be excited in Louisiana. Though he could not have known the full extent of their operations, it was known within the administration that Spanish authorities did desire to break off some lands from the West to add to their empire. Perhaps Jefferson felt that such unrest as Genet was planning could work to the advantage of the United States. Genet was not one to keep quiet, though, and it wasn't just Jefferson's ear that he was whispering his plans into. Indeed, his tenure as minister to the U.S. would be marked for his social engagement. The day after talking to Jefferson, he would be talking to Alexander Dallas, the state official that had just helped establish the Constitution of the Democratic Society of Pennsylvania. Feeling Dallas to be someone in whom he could confide, Genet shared with Dallas his intentions, should Washington remain persistent in his neutrality policy, to go over his head and issue a direct appeal to the American people who, as we said earlier, he felt were more on the side of France than they were of neutrality. Now, Dallas may have had his problems with the administration, but he realized the implications of what Genet was saying. Here was a foreign minister saying that he intended to directly influence American foreign policy by inciting the public against its own government. This was a threat to the sovereignty of the United States like no other. And despite his support for France and the Revolution, Dallas was an American first. Thus, he informed Pennsylvania Governor Thomas Mifflin, who immediately took the news to Hamilton and Secretary of War Knox. Mifflin also carried another bit of information that had come his way about something that the administration had asked him to keep his eyes on. The outfitting of La Petite Democrat was wrapping up, and the ship was making ready to set sail. All this news hit Jefferson like a ton of bricks, and he wrote to Madison the next day that, quote, Never, in my opinion, was so calamitous an appointment made as that of the present minister of France here. Hot-headed, all imagination, no judgment, passionate, disrespectful, and even indecent towards the president in his written as well as verbal communications. He renders my position immensely difficult. The rose-colored glasses were off and he saw Genet as the upstart of whom Governor Morris had warned Washington. Washington was expected back at any moment, but Jefferson, Hamilton, and Knox all realized that time was short and the privateer could set sail at any moment. Thus, on the 7th, Jefferson met first with Mifflin and Dallas, then went to talk with Genet himself to see if Mr. Jeff could use any personal influence to defuse the situation. Jefferson revealed to Genet that the government knew that the ship was ready to sail, but asked him to defer from such action until Washington's return. As described by Jefferson, Genet responded, quote, in a very high tone and went into, quote, an immense field of declamation and complaint, accusing the U.S. of violating its obligations under the Treaty of Alliance and the administration of co-opting power that properly belonged to Congress in its attempt to thwart him from carrying out official duties to which he felt himself legally entitled. La Petite Democrat was French property. The guns with which it had been equipped had been purchased by French funds and were thus French, and the United States had no right to prevent a French ship from setting sail. Jefferson asked for proof of ownership for the guns and discovered that two of its 14 guns were in fact not French property. One can imagine Genet's huffing and puffing at that one. The meeting ended without Genet agreeing to anything, but saying that though La Petite Democrat would be floated down the river, it was not yet ready to go to sea. It was a start, but it wasn't nearly enough, even for Jefferson. 
This will come as little surprise for those who are listening to the Harrison podcast in addition to this one, and have borne witness to the sprawling tale of the life of Henry Clay that was originally intended as a three-episode series and is now at episode seven, with three more currently anticipated. While I could try to cut out parts and wrap up the story of the Genet Affair in one episode, in order to do this historical moment true justice, I feel that I need to carry this out to one more episode, which I will call Genet Must Go, the conclusion of the Genet Affair. This one year has such ramifications for the future of U.S. foreign policy, for the development of political parties, and for the lives of people such as Jefferson, Hamilton, and Madison, who will play a role in American politics for years, and in some cases decades to come, that I think it deserves a close examination and understanding. Hopefully you'll agree and will find all of this illuminating and worth your time. Also, hopefully by the time this is released, Hurricane Harvey will have moved on from Texas and Louisiana, and the sun will have come out again on the Gulf Coast. However, having gone through Katrina back in 2005, I know that recovery is a long process. For our listeners affected by the hurricane, please know that you are in our thoughts and prayers as you're moving forward. Should you have any questions, comments, or even complaints, please feel free to reach out to me at Presidency's Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com, or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, or on Twitter at presidencies89. Source information for this episode can be found at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, dot com. As always, I can't thank you enough for listening. Take care, dear friends. Until next time. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.